This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. And I'd like to take an opportunity this week to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. We hope you're home this week, enjoying yourself, perhaps doing some reading. Uh, in a a long weekend. So it's great to be with all of you. And as you know, sometimes we deviate from our standard books format. Normally we cover books in whole or in part on this show, but this week we're going to discuss a very famous, important, and I would say prescient essay from the 1930s by the famous old right author Garrett Garrett. And so our topic today is The Revolution Was, which is an essay that first appeared in 1938. Uh, in a long defunct journal uh, by Garrett Garrett. I thought there'd be nobody better to join me for this than our great friend Ryan McMakin, editor of Mises.org, a staff economist here at the Mises Institute. And Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've actually written about this essay in your own work? Yeah, I covered the old right in Garrett Garrett. In, uh, there was a section in my master's thesis on the old right because it, the whole thing, the thesis was about foreign policy views on the right. And so the old right was pretty important in that. And uh, so I had to uh, get me this copy of The People's Pottage, which has this essay and a couple of other essays, one on um, uh, the rise of empire. And so these essays are just really good. Um, And then I ended up reviewing also the the 50th anniversary edition uh, about 15 years ago. And boy, does this read... Now, back then, I was reading it in light of the war on terror, and of course, it was very good then, but it's still so valid even today in terms of examining uh, how the regime increases uh, power over people and, and, and hoodwinks people <laughs> into going along with whatever its latest schemes are. And so the, uh, the level of analysis here is very excellent. Yes, I think if you want to understand the left's blueprint for revolution, I think you need to read this essay because he literally lays it out in several steps and stages. And even though the revolution we might be going through today in the form of more of a social or cultural thing, as we've seen with uh, the red state, blue state divide, the Trump, never Trump, the reactions to this recent Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, for example, those aren't economic per se, uh, in the way that Garrett Garrett was describing the 1930s and FDR still Uh, the mechanisms and modes are very similar. So for starters, people who aren't familiar with this essay, the revolution was means it's past tense. It's already happened. By the time you're aware of it, it, it's already behind you. So it didn't necessarily involve planes and guns and tanks and the overthrow of a sitting government and its replacement by a new government. And that's the way, at least uh, until most of the, up through most of the 20th century, we understood the term. So this is the revolution was. And what he means by that as we shall see, is that revolutions can take place within the form of the existing government. He starts all the way back with Aristotle in identifying this bureaucratization of government. So a revolution can take place right under your nose. I would argue, Ryan, that one is taking place right under our nose today. But I'd like to talk first a little bit about context. I mean, we talk a lot about the old right. Rothbard was a huge fan of the old right. You had people uh, like John Flynn, you had obviously Henry Hazlitt. Mises was writing economics during that period. Uh, and you have uh, Garrett Garrett as well. That's the way I pronounce it, um, as well during that period. And it's really fascinating, right? I don't think t- people today understand that there were actual libertarian men of letters who were widely published in mainstream media outlets well into the 20th century. 
I mean, you had Hazlitt and Garrett and others writing for things like the Saturday Evening Post and Colliers and the New Republic. Obviously, Henry Hazlitt was for years at uh, Newsweek magazine writing his Business Tides column on inflation. He was the chief uh, finance and economics editor at the Wall Street Journal. I mean, all of this was discussed and talked about, these brilliant writers in very mainstream outlets, and it doesn't seem that way today. No, no. I think uh, something uh, something changed where libertarianism, as let's speak of them as the laissez-faire party, were really triangulated out of the movement. And I think just being laissez-faire just became unacceptable during the New Deal. And you can see that in the decline of H.L. Mencken's career that occurred during the New Deal. Of course, he was immensely popular during the 1920s uh, for his views, which were generally laissez-faire. And uh, you had, of course, you had magazines like The Nation, which had been anti-war and uh, leaning in the laissez-faire direction less and less after the First World War. But I mean, that today now is considered a, uh, I don't know, hard left magazine, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so you just had a wide variety of other publications that you could look to where it just had, ideologically, it just had nothing resembling what you would see today in terms of general political discourse. Whereas nowadays, since Roosevelt, you just, you're just considered a weirdo eccentric if you take an actual laissez-faire position. And, and what happened was the dissenting group, so you had carrying on then with sort of this uh, actively pro-New Deal left. But then the only dissenting group became this, what came to be called conservatives. The term was never used really before uh, the New Deal to describe this, this right-wing group, which uh, wasn't as enthusiastic about the New Deal, but wasn't really going to double down on opposing it. And then with the coming of the Cold War and the end of World War II and everything, the conservatism became mo mostly recognizable as a uh, moral traditionalist and rabidly pro-interventionist foreign policy group. And lost in this equation was any sort of laissez-faire group. And so, yeah, you had a couple of eccentrics like uh, Hazlitt who, were, who continued to be tolerated, but the people who, many of whom are now nameless just because they were... Uh, they were just everywhere in terms of magazines and newspapers in the 30s um, who are just gone now. It's, that's not an acceptable part of the debate. Um, so occasionally they'll trot some hardcore laissez-faire person up there. But that's just – they're just some uh, – they're some libertarian weirdo and we only hear from them every now and then. But they're not part of the mainstream ideological debate that's going on. And and we only allow people to publish in magazines like Time or Newsweek if it's like a, a Marvin Olasky, a very uh, – a traditional moral conservative type of person, but who nevertheless would never actually want to undo the welfare state or or massively decentralize the American political system. That's all just too far out there. But of course, those views prior to Roosevelt were much, much more common. So when we're talking about the 1930s and the New Deal period, which is the subject of this essay, you mentioned that that was when the term conservative became widely used in the average lexicon here in the United States. And by conserving, that meant basically opposing the New Deal, wanting to conserve some pre-New Deal economic or social or constitutional order. But I think we should also point out, Ryan, that that was also when the old Misesian liberals sort of lost their footing, right? They no longer had a home of their own. And that's when the term classical liberalism started to creep in and even libertarian because what we meant by liberal and conservative 
uh, had a bit of a switch in the 30s. Yeah, it should be noted that there these these notions of left and right were still quite a bit in flux uh, prior to the New Deal also. So you had guys like John T. Flynn, um, who was very much against the New Deal and against uh, uh, the way the, that FDR conducted the Second World War and got the U.S. into the Second World War. He'll be called a progressive or left-leaning. Uh, I mean, it's a lot less clear there that were he around today, he would be calling himself a progressive or a left-leaning guy. And then, of course, you had Mencken, who nobody would have called that guy a conservative. He generally had uh, reserved mockery for religious groups and for uh, people who lived traditional agrarian lives. And uh, uh, he made fun of those people all the time and, and considered himself a Basically, a man of the left in terms of uh, the way he was very urban and very cultured and so on. And the term liberal then, it, it didn't mean, uh, it certainly didn't mean welfare liberal in the way we use the term now, but it could have easily encompassed the laissez-faire people, just as it had in the late 19th century under Grover Cleveland, who at the time many people considered to be a man of the left because he opposed um, he opposed the banking cartels and he opposed uh, government-sponsored monopolies and so on because he was laissez-faire for the most part. And that made you kind of a leftist because you wanted to get rid of these old entrenched business powers who were using the power of the regime to make themselves rich. And so this whole idea of left and right is also a uh, an innovation of the New Deal era that really uh, solidified itself in the 40s and 50s. What's so impressive to me, Ryan, is when we read about Hazlitt, for example, or Garrett and I earlier mentioned men of letters. I mean, that's really the term. These guys could write novels. They could write about economics. They could do literary work. As a matter of fact, uh, Henry Hazlitt was later involved in H.L. Mencken's The American Mercury, which was one of the preeminent literary journals of his time. Uh, Garrett started a literary journal called American Affairs. So these guys were intellectuals. They could operate between... Uh, different fields. Whereas today, if some econ writer at the Wall Street Journal uh, tried to be in a literary magazine, they'd probably be derided for it. So these were really skilled writers. And I think that's what business and financial journalism is sorely missing today. Yeah, just as writers, these people were extremely As skilled. writers, yes. And what do you have? You had Rose Wilder Lane, who wrote a variety of different genres. And I think if you go back and you uh, read uh, the Little House stories, uh, I think of those are very much uh, a reflection of Rose's uh, editorial skill being brought uh, to her mother. Uh, and she made those books much, much better. And so there you go. She's writing uh, some famous books, essentially. I, don't, I think she maybe even could be considered a co-author on those books. And they were writing biographies of people, uh, ghost writing stuff that was considered uh, almost at an academic level. And uh, for, as you noted, uh, publications like the Saturday Evening Post. And so uh, it was just very different. Now, of course, it was different in an in a economic sense in that you could make yourself a writer and you would write a lot of articles just for pay. And you could make a pretty decent living then just writing 3,000 words for one of these uh, weekly publications. And that's a lot harder to do today. And so you could have someone who's just committed to this craft of writing and they could spend all their time doing that. Uh, and so a lot of these people uh, who were on the, the laissez-faire side of things uh, really, uh, really were in good command of that craft and were highly skilled. Well, and it's no surprise that the reading sensibilities of the American public have fallen as well, right? I mean, when we think of Collier's, most of our readers 
listeners won't even know what that is. I barely know what that is. But the Saturday Evening Post, I mean, heck, Ryan, even in, in April of 1945, Reader's Digest published a condensed version of Hayek's Road to Serfdom. <laughs> I mean, it, it's pretty hard to think of something like that coming out today in a popular magazine. I mean, I don't even know what popular magazines are today or periodicals. They're all shells of the informers. I mean, does, I guess, does Rolling Stone sort of exist? The New Republic? I mean, what, <laughs> what, I don't even know what these things are anymore. And as far as literary journals, I mean, they're basically in the dustbin. Yeah, they. Uh, well, if you know where to find them, you can uh, still find some of that stuff online. Like uh, Arts and Letters Daily uh, is a is a good website if you're into that sort of thing. And actually, up until ten years ago, it was still a physical magazine. I used to read the Wilson Quarterly, which none of that, of course, aligns with my particular ideological views. But you could get a nice uh, long piece there on uh, the on agriculture in Africa. Or something like that. But of course, you got to wonder, what what's the circulation of a magazine like that? A few thousand people, maybe. And yeah, there just isn't the desire uh, to read that sort of thing. And of course, the, mm-hmm. um, the short story market has been obliterated in the last 40 years. And it's just not something Americans do anymore. And now, of course, we're being told that people don't want to read anything. They don't even want to read 600 words. I'm, I'm a little skeptical of that idea. Because now we're being told that everything needs to be in video format. Um, and uh, yes, there's certainly a market for that. Although uh, I, I think what you get are uh, that some of the people who engage ideas most deeply probably are still reading texts. Uh, but what? how many people are, are those? Uh, how numerous is this group? Um, now, to be sure, I don't want to overly romanticize the past either, right? It's... Uh, it's not as if people in the uh, the twenties and thirties were all reading uh, deep, deep, high end literature, but but I do think there was definitely, if you look at just American literature in general, pretty pretty high quality in my opinion. A lot of people engaged with it, and you weren't considered hoity toity if you read a book by by Hemingway, for example. Whereas now. Uh, that's considered maybe a little bit pretentious, or you're you're reading something that's high end literary, whereas Hemingway isn't really that. This was something that was written for a largely popular audience, and so I think maybe he helps illustrate uh, just how different the audience has different uh, the audience has become. Yeah, I think that's the difference. I mean, these tiny journals still exist, poetry, etc., and there are publications like Harper's. Uh, but everything seems so political or ideological, even good stuff on the right, like I would recommend Dan McCarthy is now, I, I think he's editor-in-chief or publisher of Modern Age at ISI, but but that stuff is not literary per se. A commentary magazine, for example, there are intellectual outlets, but they tend to have a political or ideological bent. And that's that's a different thing than we're talking about here. But as far as Garrett goes, I mean, Ryan, he even wrote an essay called The Bubble That Broke the World which is basically about the Fed, in 1932. So that's six years before he writes The Revolution Was. So this is a guy who's pretty incredibly nimble, uh, not just as a writer, but in terms of his knowledge as a commentator, his understanding of economics. So uh, when it comes to this essay, uh, probably as good a place to start is with the Aristotle quote, uh, where he you know, he's talking about Aristotle writing this more than 2,000 years ago. He's and quoting Aristotle, one thing takes the place of another so that the ancient laws will remain while the power will be in the hands of those who have brought about revolution in the state. So that's sort of the, the foundation for this essay. 
Yeah, it, uh, it it's really um, he he starts right off the bat with making it clear that uh, this is not a nostalgic essay. This is not a uh, boy. If we could if we could just wake America up to uh, what everyone believes, which is freedom and all of that, he's he knows that <laughs> that's that time is gone. That's uh, that's past. It's time to maybe do the autopsy. He doesn't actually try to do a lot in terms of uh, saying which steps comes next, but maybe the first thing you have to do before you take those next steps is figure out uh, where you are and how you got there. And I think this essay is particularly good for that. And yes, he he knows this is a significant shift. This isn't one of these, well, there's a silent majority out there and everyone secretly lays a fair and they've just been voting for FDR because they were tricked. Um, well, they were tricked, but they certainly have gone over utterly and completely into accepting uh, the new regime. And he explains that how the new regime was extremely successful at really turning everything around. And yes, the on paper, the U.S. system of government looks the same as it always has. But the uh, the issue of political culture in the way people read the words is totally different. And it reminds me of just a, a discussion I had just a few weeks ago with a a friend of mine who's from Argentina, and he was saying, you know, the the Argentinian uh, constitution is basically taken word for word from the American constitution. And uh, I thought, well, that really illustrates the importance of political culture and uh, what people are willing to tolerate from their regime, because obviously those uh, in terms of uh, monetary policy and spending and what people put up with from the central government, uh, even even with all of America's embrace of centralized uh, uh, power, uh, there's still some pretty big differences there. And so the words on the page only tell you so much. And what the people believe they say or should say is something else entirely. And that just changed utterly uh, in uh, in Garrett's day. And so uh, he's he's just saying, you know, get rid of this, get rid of these old notions that Maybe some minor tinkering will get us back to uh, the way things were, because it won't. There was a revolution that happened when you weren't paying attention. And by happened, he's writing or publishing this in 1938. That means it's already happened under Roosevelt. And he has this great quote from FTR. This sounds a lot like the kind of stuff we're hearing today about the great reset, the new normal, the you know, post-liberalism, post-capitalism. And this is in his annual message to Congress in 34 which is a couple years after he got in, Roosevelt says, it is to the eternal credit of the American people that this tremendous readjustment of our national life is being accomplished peacefully. I mean, that sounds like something you could say about COVID. But I love this line uh, in the essay where he says, you do not defend a world that is already lost. And that strikes me as perfect for today's setting because there's this big discussion, especially amongst conservatives, you know, wokeness and CRT and all these other things. We're watching two different movies in America, probably more than two, by the way. And if you look at the reaction to events, you see that we can't live with each other anymore. And these people are radicals. They want to totally reshape uh, sex and sexuality. They want, uh, you know, to be obsessed with race, all these other things. And we can't live together anymore. Um, so I think from what I read uh, in conservative circles is that there's this idea that we need to get back in a sense. We need to get back to something, some sort of sanity in America that existed at some magical or mystical time prior. And I think this essay would disabuse us of that. We've got to build something new, in effect. 
Well, and how do they propose to get back that sanity when they already abandoned all of the institutions that are necessary for restoring that sanity, right? These, uh, the people who run the universities, corporate America, even uh, many of these uh, religious denominations have, uh, in terms of social policy, already gone over to the other side. So it's, it's unclear to me how exactly they propose to make these changes. And uh, Garrett, of course, notes that. He says, well, we already had this, this waiting intelligentsia uh, that was in place to usher in this change. It was the college professors. It was uh, the commentators in the media. And he has a whole list of these groups. And you can just look out there today. And, and yep, these groups, they've been doing the same uh, same racket since uh, the 1930s, except now that the stranglehold is all the greater and it's moved into social policy uh, and the whole idea of the family as well. And uh, so... While uh, so, so I would say the revolution was in that as well, in terms of this long march through the institutions, the conservatives were so busy talking about how they were going to get uh, politicians elected to Congress, they didn't notice that all of the other institutions were being filled up with people that uh, would overturn uh, older bourgeois ideas of family and morality and so on. And then when they finally realized that winning some elections for Republicans wasn't enough, <laughs> it was much too late. And so I haven't seen any plan in place to really reverse this trend. Of course, at the Mises Institute, we're always trying to, to cultivate people who will actually be thought leaders and will teach the next generation and so on, because we know that non-political institutions are extremely important. And uh, Garrett understood that too, although he did understand that interplay between political institutions and non-political institutions and the role that they play in, in reinforcing each other. So he doesn't miss that either. He does see that, but, but both are very important. Well, I think one reason conservatives missed what was happening under their noses, Garrett points out, he says, he, he's quoting Oliver Wendell Holmes from the old horse and buggy days, which I, I suppose he means the 1800s, saying revolutions are not made by men in spectacles. Well, of course, the 1930s revolution was indeed made by men in spectacles. It was a bureaucratic revolution. It wasn't uh, men storming barricades. And so he has this fascinating section where he talks about this is now a new body of knowledge, how to recognize opportunities and impose revolutions. This is a, a department of knowledge. It's a philosophy. It has its own methods and manuals and textbooks. So it's almost something that's being crafted by PhDs in the halls of academia rather than workers with pitchforks in the streets. And it's really quite amazing if you go back and you read FDR speeches and the things being uh, said by guys like John Kenneth Galbraith and then, of course, Keynes's people in America. And they were so excellent at it. They would take these uh, completely nonsensical ideas about money and the economy. I mean, these people were all cranks in terms of economic theory. And then they would rephrase them in ways that sounded like down home, homespun, common sense stuff. And FDR would uh, then talk about it over the radio and the people at home would all nod their heads and say, oh, yeah, that makes that makes complete sense. And they were so masterful at taking stuff that uh, was regarded as nonsensical uh, in, uh, say, 10 or 20 years earlier and just making it sound like, of course, this is this is what uh, reasonable people do now. And uh, so th the packaging was excellent. And they uh, they were easily able to do it, especially among uh, the, the poor rural populations. What, what is astounding is if you, if you look back at 
the votes that uh, FDR got in some of the more agricultural, rural, and lower income states, mostly out west and in the south, in, in say, the election of 32 and 36 and even into 1940 and beyond, Roosevelt was winning 70, 80, 85% of the votes, in a few votes, 90% of the vote in places like Mississippi uh, or I believe in Montana as well. And because these farmers, they would tune into these radio uh, addresses and they would just believe everything FDR told them. They couldn't get enough of that guy. And uh, I mean, he could have told them anything. And he did tell them stuff that was extremely radical and over the top and completely unheard of in uh, previous American debate and, and uh, discussion. And he just he just managed to get it all through. And, and to, it did make me a little bit thankful that we're nowhere near that point in terms of just one man being able to get 90% of the population and whole swaths of the country to agree with him. Uh, but uh, it, it is significant to see just how well they managed to uh, use the situation to really push through a radical agenda back during the, the New Deal days. And of course, FDR's great skill was to identify an opportunity. That's what this essay talks about quite a bit, and then create a revolution within the state, within the framework of existing law. Uh, but what's remarkable, Ryan, is later on when his radicalism became better known, uh, his policies and programs became better known, as you suggest, he, he still continued to do well in middle and rural America. But in the 32 election, when he's first elected, uh, Garrett presents just – it's just incredible. Um, it's startling to see how different his governance was from his campaign rhetoric. I mean this guy ran on a platform in 32 as a Democrat. Well, we're going to get rid of 25 percent of government because it's wasteful and we're going to have sound money. We're even going to check out silver. Uh, and just a couple years later, by 34, 35, I mean they are confiscating, repudiating gold, for example. So people – really got a bait and switch that is almost, I think, unthinkable even today in terms of how different someone governs from how they campaigned. I mean, maybe you could say that in the, in the very modern era about George W. Bush, but I think this this goes well beyond that. Yeah, it's important to remember that uh, apparently as late as 1932, the Democratic Party was still uh, a pretty good party and maybe the good party. Mm -hmm. um, although Coolidge did a pretty decent job, but certainly with the exception of um, uh, Wilson, the Democratic Party was mostly the, the better presidents and the better leaders in terms of laissez-faire, in terms of decentralization, all that. And then, yes, this platform from 1932 that uh, that Garrett lays out here is is amazing, right? It's all about hard money. It's all about a balanced budget um, and uh, all these issues of respecting law and order and the Constitution and and a free economy. And boy, and yeah, that, that was just completely pitched out the window over a period of just two years. And so uh, you can see how the entire idea of the different uh, ruling uh, regimes in terms of Republicans versus Democrats, in terms of what is considered just regular American discourse in terms of government spending and the gold standard and all that, just completely evaporated, just all of a sudden. And all of this, as uh, he notes, right, th there wasn't even an election in the interim, right? We had a guy who ran on a platform of mostly free markets and controlled government spending, and then that's just completely abandoned. And they had a completely different governing idea and platform 
And then, of course, he was rewarded in 1936 with that. So there's no going back at that point. This whole completely new way of doing things was done. And it didn't even require uh, constitutional amendments or any of that. As he, he takes you, Garrett takes you through, of course, all these different institutions then that were gradually brought under FDR's sway, especially Congress and the courts, and uh, basically became sort of this autocratic uh, administrative state then. Uh, with uh, with one man with the leadership principle, as Gret uh, calls it, that uh, yep, we need this guy to guide us through these tough times. And so this idea of opposing the great leader and striking out on your own politically, having maybe a, a different agenda for your region of the country and so on, which of course was standard American politics up until that time, that was all gone too. So now we just had to we had to accept the great leader FDR and go along with his platform because that's what was good for America. There was so much propaganda involved with this, skillful propaganda. And what I love about this essay was we basically got Garrett going back as a political scientist and describing the mechanisms and the challenges by which uh, you know FDR managed to accomplish this program of conquest is the term used by the essay. So very briefly for the listeners. You got to read this essay. We're going to link to it. It's a great weekend read during your Thanksgiving, by the way. You can read it in an hour or so. But I just want to quickly lay out the nine problems facing FDR, which the essay identifies and then describes how FDR overcame them. So first is to capture the seat of government. That basically means the presidency, the executive, as we'll find out. The second would be to seize economic power. The third is to mobilize by propaganda the forces of hatred. And that little brief section very much describes what we've got going on today. Uh, hatred as the basis of communism, envy, the othering, the scapegoating, all of that uh, absolutely in effect today. The fourth would be to reconcile and then attach to the revolution the two great classes. So back then he's talking about farmers and wage workers, presumably factory or industrial workers. But today we could uh, divide the classes many ways. We could say uh, oppressors and oppressed. Uh, you know, we could do it racially. We could do it by woke versus Trumper. I mean, there's there's plenty of ways that we could we could view that. The fifth is what to do with business, whether to liquidate or shackle it. And of course, FDR ultimately went with the decision to shackle it. The sixth is the domestication of individuality, uh, which means, for example, farmers during the New Deal period who were rugged individualists had to be tamped down and bought off with subsidies. Uh, the seventh is a systematic reduction of all forms of rival authority, which, of course, the whole history of the 20th century, the unitary executive, is one of overcoming the so-called branches of government, the Supreme Court, Congress, and state authority. Uh, the eighth is to sustain popular faith in an unlimited public debt. And, of course, with MMT, we now see that that has become an article of faith on the left is that, and on the right to an extent, the deficits don't matter. And the ninth is to make government itself the great capitalist and enterpriser. So government begins to consume and crowd out more and more of the private economy through things like social security and treasury debt. It becomes uh, the main source of capital accumulation. So it's really, uh, as a an essay, if nothing else, as a descriptive essay, as a political scientist, this is a huge achievement. Yeah, I mean the way he uh, he breaks it out and looks at, for example, uh, government corporations, right? Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. This is exactly what he's talking about in there in terms of how 
well, we don't get rid of capitalism. What we do is, is make the state a capitalist. And we uh, then uh, put it in competition with the private sector, and it becomes really the center of the financial world, even though we're not abolishing a private sector finance. We're not, uh, we're not uh, uh, taking that over. That still exists. That's still allowed. But, but it all needs to be helped along. And so just all of these little pieces that he describes. And one of the examples that he doesn't use here that I thought was just really helped uh, point out his uh, section uh, and really illustrate his section on how you need to get rid of all forms of rival authority was FDR's speech on uh, packing the court. And uh, I used to teach this when I taught political science because it's such, it's such a masterful example of FDR delivering complete BS and uh, doing it in such a great way and completely destroying older ideas of how the American government was supposed to work. So it goes like this. We all know that the way the American government worked, uh, or at least in, in theory, right, was that you had three different branches of government, and they were supposed to not like each other, they were supposed to cancel <laughs> each other out, and there was supposed to be competition there, right? They were supposed to restrain each other and pull in different directions so that the federal government was not just moving in one direction would overwhelm everybody. Well, FDR, and during his court packing speech, his, uh, you know, right, fireside chat, he completely reframes it. And he says that really, uh, the America, he, he uses the metaphor of the American government is like a, a three-horse team pulling a big cart uh, or stagecoach, <laughs> right? That sort of thing. And that the, the way the American government is supposed to work is that all those horses are supposed to be working together to help pull the cart, which is the American people. And what's, the, what's wrong now is that one of those three horses is off doing its own thing and isn't helping the president and the Congress pass all the laws that needs to take America in the right direction. So all I'm asking for you, America, is to let me redo the Supreme Court so that finally we can get all three of those horses pulling everyone in the same direction and finally get America to the destination that it needs to get to. Now, I, and, right, you can just imagine all the Americans nodding along. Oh, yes, right. We need to take America where America needs to, to go to become successful and prosperous. When, of course, he completely undermined the entire idea of uh, <laughs> the three branches of U.S. government, of the idea of federalism, of, of uh, the idea of uh, competing powers uh, at the regime level, and so on, all just gone with that one speech. And so if you adopt that new metaphor of the state, it plays perfectly into what uh, Gare's talking about here, which is the idea of, well, I'm the president, and now we all need to work together and do what I think is best. And uh, so you had... Uh, you had those three horses, but it wasn't just those three horses, right? We need to do, we're going to buy off the state governments. We're going to buy off the municipalities. We're going to introduce a huge administrative state, which is um, just going to make up its own laws as it goes along. And that's all going to be under this unitary executive at the federal government. And uh, he was extremely successful at that. And And so much of what we continue to see in the federal government is really the world that FDR created. Well, the rhetorical flourish to attack the Supreme Court was the phrase nine old men. And if you think about that, that's very effective framing. That would be very effective today. Why should nine old men, we have some women now, uh, why should nine old men make all these decisions about the country? Well, that's a good question, by the way. And so you and I, Ryan, might say, yeah, we agree with that. Let's abolish the Supreme Court. FDR's response was to pack it with more people. So there's 12 old men or whatever. Um, but I think what's so important about this, when we think about this dopey uh, idea of separation of powers in America, it sounds like an after-school special, how a bill becomes a law, is that the way they broke 
the so-called separation of powers is through administrative law. And that's a huge field for lawyers, for example. I mean, administrative law is where the action really takes place. For most people, um, you know, going and suing the federal government in its own federal courts is a non-starter. It's a non-remedy if you feel that the government has harmed you. So administrative law is what really grinds us. It's what really governs us day to day. And it's, it's remarkable to think that this happened in just a decade or so. And the, and the rhetoric designed to, to do this, in other words, they felt like they couldn't attack the Constitution. They couldn't attack capitalism or free enterprise. You could attack those a lot more easily today. But in the 1930s, there's, you know, there was still a general sentiment that, gee, that's kind of what America is based on. And those are kind of good things. So instead, you attack greed or you attack profits or you attack nine old men. And you do all this through administrative posturing. You use it by expanding the notion of the interstate commerce clause, which is now an absolute farce in constitutional law, right? The idea that someone growing a crop purely domestically in a particular state and then selling that crop purely domestically in a particular state, that that affects interstate commerce because um, that means there was less for sale in another state or across state lines or something like that. Uh, you know, that that's so far beyond uh, any sort of rational understanding of constitutional constraints that at that point, you're just looking at words on a document, but they have no real meaning because in the FDR era, the Supreme Court has come along and imbued them with farcical non-meaning. Well, I, I think that then makes me think of uh, one of the most beneficial aspects of reading this essay for the modern reader is I think if you just grew up in America and you haven't read much history and you're unfamiliar with how the U.S. government functioned prior to this time, so many of these institutions and the ways of doing things and the way that the texts are read just blends into the background and just seems natural. That's just the way it's always been done. So when you read this section he has in here on the uh, Interstate Commerce Clause the, the, and the fact that it's just such a completely novel way of reading it and just such an absurd line of reasoning that was used to justify federal regulation of everything under the sun. And then you read that and you start to think, oh, yeah, but by, by what text, by uh, what uh, line in the Constitution uh, is it justified that the U.S. government, the federal government, not about states or municipalities, which we're always really able to regulate uh, uh, matters for local businesses uh, at the state and local level. But the fact that this federal government could come in now and regulate the minutia of the day-to-day -day lives of people was just this completely new idea. And it was just, and a lot of it was based on this tortured reading of the Commerce Clause, which Gered explains. And many people are probably completely unaware that this was a new thing invented. And then, of course, that section on it, the administrative takeover, basically, of all the branches, that's actually one of the most memorable parts of this essay. And maybe one of uh, Garrett's most uh, insightful moments as a political scientist is the way he looks at how the administrative state was used to short circuit the whole idea of different branches of government, because he noted uh, there's two things going on with the administrative state. It's all under the executive branch, of course. Uh, and so you've got uh, groups like OSHA or um, any other of those alphabet sorts of groups that are now regulating daily life uh, through the federal government. 
But he notes that, okay, they're doing two things. First of all, they're making up new laws all the time. And these laws appear in the Federal Register today because we gave rulemaking authority to all these federal bureaucrats. And we call them rules or regulations or policies. But the fact of the matter is, is they have the force of law because they can ruin your life. And if you don't follow them, you can be destroyed. And then the other aspect of that is the administrative judges, right? There, there used to be this idea that if you were going to sit through some sort of judicial hearing, this was going to happen through the judicial branch and that this would be separate then from the people who made the laws and through the executive branch people who are attempting to enforce them. But now, nope, we folded an entire branch of law into the administrative state as well. And these people can, of course, ruin your life as well. And we call them judges, but they're they're not within uh, a separate part of the government. They're just all answerable to the executive. And so we abolished that through <laughs> that whole idea is gone too, and where now everything is basically up to these administrators within the executive brand. And that was just a major, major change that uh, Gered is very insightful in pointing out. Well, and for average Americans, the recourse they have against the federal government, as I mentioned earlier, is, is almost entirely illusory. Because oftentimes when the an administrative agency comes after you and tries to ruin your life, as you put it, first of all, you're required to exhaust your, your administrative remedies before you could even sue in federal court. So that oftentimes takes years to work your way through, you know, let's say the EEOC comes after your business or the SEC comes after you or something like that. So first you have to exhaust your administrative re remedies. Then you have to say, okay, I hope you have 10 years of your life and a few million bucks for lawyers so that you can go into federal court and try to push back against this powerful federal government that doesn't even have to worry about billable hours on its side. Its lawyers are all paid for in salary. So if you're Mark Cuban, for example, and the SEC goes after you, you can make what is effectively a personal decision. It's not, not a wise economic decision that I care so much about my reputation. I think he was charged or, or he was investigated perhaps for insider trading so-called. So he can say, my reputation is so important, I will spend stupid amounts of money and fight the SEC tooth and nail with the most expensive best lawyers I can because I'm Mark Cuban and I'm a billionaire and I can do it. And then he eventually prevailed in the sense that I believe the SEC dropped the charges against him. Forgive me if I'm not totally correct on the facts here. So that's not something an average American can do. If your cousin uh, who gives you that hot stock tip because he works for a company that's making a new medical device, let's say, and you act on it and go go, uh, you know, get in early on the ground floor of an IPO or something, the SEC could come along and ruin your life. And you're not, unlike Mark Cuban, you probably don't have 10 years and millions of dollars to fight back. So that's, that strikes me as a, a real change in, what, in how we understand, and not only administrative law versus the Article Three judicial branch, but more importantly, how it works in practice, which is that you're under the thumb of these administrative agencies. The IRS is a great example of this. Um, you know, Ryan, and while this power is accumulating in the administrative state under the president and being pulled away from Congress, being pulled away from the judiciary, it's also being pulled away from the private market because uh, he talks about uh, one of the elements of this is to make government, meaning the federal government, the premier capitalist in society. So through things like um, Social Security, through things like regulatory agencies, it becomes the main actor, the predominant actor in the economy. And of course, that has grown by leaps and bounds 
since this essay was published 90 years ago now. Yeah, there's some great financial journalism in here where he just goes through how the economic policy was changed so drastically and that uh, it was based on this idea that simply the private sector is fine, we tolerate it, private property is great and all that, but it just does a poor job of managing itself. So we have to really regulate it. And uh, I noticed here going back through my physical copy here, looking at the things I underlined back in 2004, I apparently got a big kick out of this thing where he talks about how part of the justification for Social Security was uh, that Americans, in some cases, were saving too much and uh, that what we needed was to bring in Social Security uh, funds and uh, so that the government could uh, could move that money around in a more efficient way and uh, and really ensure that there wasn't oversaving and that what was being saved was distributed to the proper places and so on. So again, it's not this idea that saving is bad or that people shouldn't be able to save, but just that when they do it wrong or they do it too much, we'll just we'll just step in and we'll redistribute it a little bit. And you can have most of your freedom, but uh, uh, you know, we'll we'll just help move things along. And that was generally really what the attitude was. It wasn't See, when people come in and they say, oh, yeah, these people, they were just total Marxists. They were socialists. It's not really right because they were willing to tolerate the private market so long as they could use it in a way to build up the power of the regime. And they were willing to to play along uh, just as most highly successful and wealthy regimes have always been that way, as they'll tolerate the marketplace because they recognize that it brings in and produces a lot of wealth. Just as long as they get theirs and they have an opportunity to regulate it properly, uh, they're going to play ball. They're going to actually mimic the marketplace and uh, create institutions like Social Security or like the GSEs and other organizations that function largely like corporations, uh, but which are basically governmental in nature. And uh, so it's not a repudiation of capitalism in the way that a Marxist might do it. It's just simply good old-fashioned power politics where, yeah, sure, you can have a market, just uh, just make sure and do it uh, as we say, and give us a nice big chunk of change off the top so that we can uh, fulfill all of our goals and pay off all of the interest groups that we want to make sure vote for us. Right. And it's important to understand that FDR saw this and his handlers saw this as, again, a revolution within the form. So we're not going to uh, liquidate businesses. We're actually going to embrace them and shackle them in a form of a melding of corporate and state power. We, we would today call that fascism. I think this is a very much a proto-fascist period in American history. We're not going to seize capital. We're going to divert it. And what strikes me as remarkable is this idea that in, within about a 10-year period, the shift in the American understanding through the creation of the Federal Reserve and then later through the New Deal, so-called a 20-year period, um, the capital formation is now primarily in the hands of the federal government through its control of the banking sector. That's pretty remarkable because if you had told a farmer in the 1890s that the federal government is going to be the source of capital formation in the country, I think that would have been a pretty shocking thing to say. Yeah. The, <laughs> yes. The, uh, the, the war on savings and capital formation is a very interesting aspect of the New Deal. And uh, this, of course, is uh, orthodox Keynesianism in a certain sense in that uh, – Right, we're going to fall into all these liquidity traps, and uh, there's people who just aren't using the money properly, and so we, through government spending and through deficit spending, will do the whole thing properly, and then we'll get richer that way. But 
of course, in the late 19th century, when laissez-faire uh, was uh, really, in many ways, the dominant ideology for the most part, with a variety of deviations, you knew that the way to get rich was through saving and through prudent investment and from and putting off spending now for the future. And that was real uh, capital accumulation. And part of the big uh, struggle to maintain hard money was to not um, to not punish the people who were trying to engage in true saving and true capital accumulation. Uh, and so that was the discussion from that time period. But that was all abandoned with the New Deal. And it embraces completely new idea of how wealth was actually produced through government management and through the redistribution of government money. And it wasn't just the redistribution. And of course, a lot of people think of the New Deal, they think mostly in terms of the welfare state and Social Security and uh, the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. And they gave jobs to unemployed people and all that. Really, probably the, the more important aspect of it was the regulatory state that grew out of that. And we're living very much with that today. I suspect that uh, if the, the welfare state hadn't materialized at the federal level, it would have materialized at the state level in probably a significant way, just as it has uh, throughout Europe and most other small states in the world. But the fact that it became this federal regulatory regime, and also it's significant that it was a federal welfare state, which I've noted in a couple of articles, that's a very different deal than if you had a bun if you had 50 different statewide welfare states. Um, what, what FDR then managed to create then was a system where the federal government held all the cards in terms of the wealth and being able to buy off state states. And if any state government wanted to go its own way, that made it a lot easier for the federal government to cut off the resources and uh, turn off the spigot of federal money. And uh, we're still definitely seeing the effects of that today. Well, I'd like to offer a couple of closing remarks and then get your closing remarks, Ryan. You know, it strikes me that Joe Biden is a very ineffective person. He's old. He seems feeble. He doesn't have any of FDR's magnetism or power or skill or intelligence. I mean, FDR is a formidable guy, even in a wheelchair. And so the other day when I sat by and say, look, look, I, I'm a capitalist, but they need to pay their fair share, you know, that sort of thing. Well, obviously what he means is I'm not a capitalist. And so private industry or billionaires in this country have to go along with, let's say, our tax regime and, and they have to go along with our environmental regime to worry about climate change. They have to go along with diversity, equity, and inclusion in their hiring practices, whatever it might be, whatever Biden's alluding to with that but, that pregnant but hanging out there. Um, what he means is he's not a capitalist and this isn't a capitalist economy and that these pri so-called private businesses are effectively have a partner in Uncle Sam, whether they want it or not. Some of them want it, by the way. So he's no FDR but he's cut from the same mentality. And so when we look back over this you know, last hundred years and how effective it's been, you know, that's what Garrett, 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 I say Garrett, Garrett, Ryan over here says Garrett. Um, th that's what he's getting at. The revolution was, it's in the past. So even when, he, when he's writing about the 1930s, the seeds of all of this were planted by Wilson in the 1910s. When Wilson's doing what he was doing, the seeds of that were created in the earlier progressive era of the late 1800s. So there's always a precedent. And I think despite all of our highfalutin technology today, the, the access to information at our fingertips digitally, Ryan, the fact that get, you know, getting information and reading about the past has never been cheaper or easier. Our grandparents had to go and seek it out at a physical library somewhere. Um, nonetheless, we're no smarter than that. Uh, so things are happening under our nose that are revolutionary, and yet we're still 
sort of talking about and debating and discussing a past which is no longer real. So I'll just reiterate this great quote, um, which probably sums up (laughs) the essay better than anything else. You do not defend a world that is already lost. And so I think that's our challenge is we, you know, you and I both have kids is what's the new world? What's the world that we hopefully help create? Yeah, I think that's really the the big question. What are the institutions you want to support? Uh, what is the idea of what is uh, the society you want to live in? And this is uh, something that people have to make a real decision about. And there, we're not at a point where uh, it's it's a question of well, do we just go back to what we had a few years ago, or do we embrace the next step? Because what was a few years ago was the it was no different than what's going on right now. There's just a, a gradual change. And I think maybe what they want to do is is apply then the New Deal mentality to perhaps some social changes. And uh, that will lead, I think, um, to perhaps some real national division. But uh, I think people need to be aware of how it's being done, and that I think a lot of the time uh, people, uh, who want to push through some revolutionary changes are using a different playbook than the people who still think that they're living in a country that believes one thing when the reality is something else entirely. And so you still do encounter that. You still do see that, well, you know, when I was growing up 10 years ago, things were things were much, much different and the country believed something else entirely. I'm not sure that's really true. I think maybe it's just because become that the Uh, The other side has become more emboldened because they've gone from success to success over the last 20 years and now can say many things explicitly that couldn't be said. But I went to college in the 1990s, and uh, that wasn't exactly an era of uh, (laughs) religious conservatism in higher ed. And uh, maybe people in uh, in those institutions have become a little bit more emboldened and perhaps shifted uh, a little bit more in a certain direction, but I don't see any sort of a significant change that you had occur uh, during the 1930s. So it's we're still living in that world, in the in the New Deal world, that the tactics seem to be the same, the general movement and direction seems to be the same, and I think we just need to heed uh, his warning, Gourette's warning, uh, which is that you know, quit qu- quit clinging to this idea of this thing that you think we can go back to because it just doesn't exist. And uh, so I, I, I'm impressed by the essay, by its lack of naivete, uh, by its its very clear insight into coming to grips with the way things are now and the methods which have been used. And uh, I had forgotten just how good it is, but I would definitely recommend a reread for anyone who may have even read it before. Well, absolutely. We're going to post a link to this. It's a great weekend read. As I said, if you like power analysis like James Burnham, if you like Flynn, if you like Albert J. Nock, if you like Hazlitt, if you like H.L. Macon, you're going to really enjoy this essay from a writer you may not be familiar with. So we're going to post a link. You can read it for free. You can purchase it along with some other essays of his from the Mises Institute Bookstore. So all that said, I want to thank you, Ryan McMakin, for your time today. Ladies and gentlemen, have a very, very happy Thanksgiving, and we'll, we'll see you next week. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.